So for us, here's what we know. Easter is not an annual event. Easter is the very essence of the identity of Jesus Christ. When Jesus makes the statement, I am the resurrection and the life, it is an identity statement. And as we've concluded here, it's not an annual event. So as evangelical followers of Jesus Christ, Easter is a 365, 24-7 living reality for us that we celebrate the risen Christ daily. I met a a family the other day, and they they guaranteed me they would be here tomorrow morning. And the girl said, uh, so what do y'all wear on Easter Sunday? And I said, we dress the same every week. I said, but here's what I want you to kind of consider. Every day is Easter for those who are really in love with Jesus Christ. Right? Don't you wake up in the morning and celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive and he's taken up residence within your heart and you go, it's not an annual event. It's a living reality that's to be celebrated every day. So I like the backdrop we've got working here. Nick, great job. I love the illumination and the colors right there, brother. Here's a fundamental uh, kind of philosophy we have here at the cross. That life is done in circles, not in rows. And you'll hear that often if you hang out with us. And you, uh, you get to see Mickey, our small group leader, kind of uh, share a little bit of what she does here on the front side of the message on video. But here's what we believe. We believe that true life is not done sitting in a row where you look at the back of someone else's head. Now, for some of you, you don't want to look at this head right here anyway, right? I mean, my, my kids are always picking on me about how much... Well, how little hair I've got. And I'm constantly being made fun of because of the size of my head. I wear a seven and three quarters, which those one size fits all hats is a lie straight from hell. That doesn't apply to the cash game pool. But we really do believe that true life is done in circles where it's small, where it's intimate, where it's authentic, where it's organic. And so we believe that all of us have circles when it comes to how we do life. Now, I want you to think about this. I mean, that inner circle, that relationship with God, whether you're really connected with God, walking with God, or or really in tune with him, that that really is a circle in our world. And then you kind of move out from it, and we've got family. And uh, I've got family. I've got a wife, and I've got five kids, and I've got in-laws and outlaws, and uh, uh, you know what I'm talking about. I've heard it said that mixed emotions is having your mother-in-law Drive off a cliff in your new Cadillac. I I got a good mother-in-law. I'm going to tell you that. But we've got these circles of of family, do we not? And then you've got friends, and your friends can be confidants and people that you work with. And and then we've got these acquaintances that, that we have in our world. And then we interact at times with strangers. But all of us have these circles that we do life in. Now, here's where we kind of want to go tonight. Here's where I want to go as we kind of kick off this four-week series. Now, if you're visiting, I would invite you to come back because next week we're going to look at marriage. Marriage is two imperfect people coming together trying to do life, right? And, And reality is if a healthy marriage is going to take place, two funerals must take place before the vows are shared because you got to die to who you are if it's going to work. That's just the reality. And then I want to talk about parenting the following week. And, and a lot of us are going, man, I need some help in that area. And then I want to talk about how do you deal with high maintenance kind of toxic relationships that last week. Not that we have any of those uh, represented here in this room, but I just want to talk about it anyway. So I want you to stay with me for four weeks. 
Here's what I know about relationships, though. The great philosopher Paul McCartney once said, somebody's knocking at the door and somebody's ringing the bell. Do me a favor and open the door and let him in. But let me ask you this question. Who do you really let in and who do you trust? Now, come on. Who do you truly let in and who do you truly trust? Because a lot of us come in here tonight, and I would say pretty much all of us come in here tonight with some relationships when it comes to these friendships and family people. And all of us sitting in this room have been hurt in relationships. If you've lived over two years on the planet, you've been hurt. And and for some of us, because of the abuse or the betrayal or the rejection, listen to me, some of us are all guarded and we're hesitant to trust anybody. And, And that's a reality. Now, when it comes to this whole circle of dealing with God, some of you have been burned by church. And for some this weekend, this will be the first time in a long time that they've stepped back in a church because they've been hurt. And, and what they've concluded is, I, I'm not really sure I want to let anybody into my world, especially church people with the hypocrisy and everything I've seen. Now, some people really have concluded that. And, and we're, we're so glad that you're here tonight, and we're so glad those people are going to be on our campus this weekend. But that's a reality. That's a reality. But I want to talk tonight about the most important relationship you'll ever have. And I want to talk about this relationship that you have with God. And so again, the question has to be asked, who do you let in and who do you really trust? Because there's a lot of people that will assemble in the name of God week after week and go to church, but they, they, they won't let God in. They won't let Jesus in. They will, they, they're not willing to really open up their heart and be transparent and have this intimate relationship with God. But it's the most important relationship you'll ever have. It is foundational and essential to every thing you do. Now, one of the questions we pose oftentimes is, what is your view of God? When you think of God, what is your first thought? And if you had to kind of lay out some characteristics of God on what God is really like, what would you say? Now, again, based on our marinades and our church culture and our family dynamics, all of us, it it doesn't matter here in the South, all of us have some type of concept in view of God. What is yours? Now, now when Jesus came on the scene some 2,000 years ago, and I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. God had created man about 6,000 years ago. The Bible says that man and woman, Adam and Eve, were in the garden. And they had this cool, like harmonious, intimate relationship with God. And nothing disturbed it. And they willfully sinned. And so now you've got this distortion. And sin disrupted humanity at every level. I mean, there was all kinds of chaos that came into the world as a result of sin. And so all of us come from Adam and Eve, from that gene pool. So it doesn't matter what color you are or what part of the country you come from. I mean, we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We really are. But, but because of all of this chaos and, and, and because of this alienation and separation, we really believe that some 2,000 years ago, God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and we believe he came in the person of Jesus Christ. We really believe that, and we believe that Jesus lived 30 years And Jesus was just going about life, being perfect and being sinless. And all of a sudden, he launches his public ministry at the age of 30. 
And we believe he was out doing a lot of cool things. We have kind of looked at some of those where he's turning water into wine at a wedding, man, keeping parties alive. And he's extending grace and love and mercy to the abused and to the confused and to the religious and to a, a wide variety of people. He was extending the heart of God. Now, what's your view of God? What's your view of who God really is? Now, here's where I want to go. So the scripture says that a lot of pagans, that means lost people that were hell raisers and just not into following God, a lot of these pagan people would want to hear what Jesus had to say. Now, I want to pick it up in Luke 15. It's in your bulletin. Luke chapter 15, these people were just interested to listen to Jesus. So listen to what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, tax collectors. They were some of the most despised dudes of that society. I mean, if you were to pay 6% tax or whatever, these guys were charging like 10%. They were ripping people off, and nobody liked them. I mean, even the religious people, the pagans, the righteous, self-righteous, Sadducees, you name them, nobody liked the tax collectors. They were a bunch of thugs, and they were ripping people off, right? And we're getting ready for April 15th around here, and we kind of feel the tension, don't we? But it says tax collectors and other notorious sinners. If you do a study on the word notorious sinners, it means those who are evil and just live wicked. I'm like, wow. Notorious sinners, wicked people, evil people, now circle the word, often, often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such despicable people, he was even eating with them. Now, 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 get the backdrop here. What is your view of God? How do you see him? Because of the despicable, notorious sinners were wanting to hear what he had to say. It doesn't sound like a lot of the church kind of people I grew up around. If I got my hair cut and didn't go to movies and burned all my rock and roll music, then they said I would be okay. But these people are the ones that were associating with Jesus. And here's what we know. We know the Pharisees criticized these tax collectors, these prostitutes, these people, and they said they're unhealthy and they're unworthy and they're dirty and they they don't deserve God. But not only did they criticize the people, they condemned Jesus for hanging out with such people. And so now here's the backdrop. Now, as I get into these three stories, which is really under one central truth that Jesus shares, I want you to hear something. Everything in these three stories hinges on verses one and two. The despicable, notorious sinner was coming to Jesus And Jesus looks at the Pharisees, the religious cops of that day, and he tells them some stories. He goes, "Um, so so you're mad at me. You're frustrated with how I'm doing business. You don't understand the heart of God. He said, there was a a man that had a hundred sheep. He starts talking sheep. He starts talking uh, uh, business, if you will, of what so many of the people involved in that culture were doing. They were raising sheep. And he goes, a man had a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep got lost. 
One of the sheep strayed away, and sheep are dumb. You don't see sheep in the circus, right? You really can't train sheep, and we're referred to as sheep, so if you're starting to feel really good about yourself, oftentimes we're referred to as sheeple. So anyway, he says, a man had a hundred, he loses one. Listen to what he does. He doesn't sit back and go, hey, cool, man, 99 stayed. It says that he takes off and he finds that one sheep that has become lost. That's what the scripture says. Now, now here's what we know. If a shepherd lost a sheep and could not prove that it had been eaten by a predator, he had to come out of his own pocket and pay for the lost sheep. So he is really like pursuing that which he values. Now, listen to what the scripture says. Listen to what the scripture says, beginning in verse 6. And when he comes home... When he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors and he says, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you in the same way in heaven, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous. All he's saying is Pharisees, you religious cops. You who think you've got it together, you don't know the heart of Abba, the creator that made you. He wants to celebrate. He says, rejoice, I have found that which was lost. And, 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 and I think so many people that, that have disengaged with church don't know the heart of the father. And they don't know that God cares about the one sheep that goes missing. They don't know that God's willing to pursue the one sheep that's lost. And when he finds it, he goes, yes. And then he says, uh, there was a lady and, and she had these 10 silver coins and she lost one of her coins. And when she lost it, she turned her house upside down looking for the coin So he's talking to the guys and he grabs their heart. Now he's talking to the females. Now, what is he saying? In that culture, when a young lady would get married, her husband would present her much like our wedding bands. He would present her with this headdressing that had these 10 silver coins in it. And when she wore that headdressing of these 10 silver coins, it it was a declaration of saying, I've been redeemed and I've been married and I am a wife and I belong. That's That's what it would say. So for her to lose one coin would be embarrassing it would be a disgrace to her so he's painting up this story saying she loses it she turns her house upside down and when she finds it listen to what she says she calls together her friends and neighbors saying rejoice with me i have found the coin which was lost in the same way there is joy in the presence of the angels of god over one sinner who repents And this is where he's driving home the point. And this is the reason I wanted to share this, this Easter, is because so many people that have been affiliated with the church have never repented. They don't know the heart of the Father. They don't know the heart of heaven. They don't know that he pursues that which is lost and that which is confused and that which is straight. And he goes, I love you. I've always been for you. I'm not against you. And he continues to emphasize every time this happens, there's a celebration in heaven because God and the angels get jacked when somebody repents. Yeah. 
And then he paused and he says, there was this dude that had two sons. Yeah, and this man had these two sons. So he goes from one out of a hundred being lost to one out of ten being lost. Now he goes to one out of two becoming lost. And he says, the younger son came to the dad and said, give me the share of the estate. Give me my inheritance now. You're as good as dead, dad. I want what I want now. And he says, the father gave it to him. And it says this young son of his went into a far country. He took off to New Orleans and he started living the wildlife. That's what the text says. It says he was wine, women, and song, and he was having the time of his life, so he thought. And the Bible says that when this young son living in his rebellion reached the point of brokenness, meaning he ran out of money. And when he ran out of money, those so-called friends that had been hanging out with him, they were nowhere to be found. And he says, this old boy ends up attaching himself to a, to a farmer, a pig farmer. He was Jewish. They didn't even eat pork. He is like broke saying, I've got to have something to help me. And all of a sudden it says that he was longing to fill his pods even with what the pigs were eating. And while he's laying there, the Bible says he comes to him himself and he comes to his senses and says how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread to eat here I am losing life and forfeiting life he said I tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to get up and I'm going to go back to the father and I'm going to tell the father that I've sinned against heaven and in his sight I'm no longer worthy to be called his son and I'm going to go back home that's what the scripture says so he got up And he came to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, the father saw his son. He felt compassion for him. He ran. He embraced him. He kissed him. Then the father said to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, which is a statement of righteousness. You've been living in sin and in ruins, but I'm going to clothe you. I view you as righteous. He said, put a ring on his finger which signified his identity. You're not just a a slave coming back home. You're a son. You're somebody. He said, put sandals on his feet because when the younger son would take a job as a pig farmer in a far country, one of the things he had to do was remove his sandals. And he goes, no, no, no. You're You're not this slave to just anybody. You're a son of mine. And then he said, kill the fatted calf. Listen to what he says. He said, kill the fatted calf, fire up the barbecue. We're about to throw down for this son of mine was dead. And he's come back to life again. The son of mine was lost and he's now been found. And they began to celebrate. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Whatever your view of God is, he is not a cosmic sheriff. He's not out trying to blow you up and lock you up and beat you down. He is a graceful God. And he loves to pursue that which is lost. And maybe you're lost and you know it. I mean, the the sheep was lost, knew he was lost and couldn't do anything about it. 
And maybe that's you. I don't know what to do. The coin was lost, didn't even know it was lost, and still was pursued. I've met people that way. They're lost, and they don't even know they're lost, and God pursues them. The son was lost, and he knew he was lost, and he could do something about it. I got to get back home. But the heart of heaven is God loves people, and God pursues that which is lost. Brennan Manning said this, God is the father who ran to his son when he came limping home. God weeps over us when shame and self-hatred immobilize us. God loves who we really are, whether we like it or not. He calls us to come out of hiding into a safe place with him. No amount of spiritual makeup can render us more presentable. Jesus says, come to me now, acknowledge and accept who I want to be for you. I want to be a savior of boundless compassion, infinite patience, unbearable forgiveness, and love that keeps no score of wrongs. Whatever your view is, we celebrate this incredible God. This entire weekend, people stop and pause and they think about Good Friday and they think about Resurrection Sunday. Why did Jesus do all that he did? He did it to glorify his Father, to provide atonement once and for all for you and I. Because he's been pursuing our hearts from the day we were born. We were born wretched, miserable, pitiful, sinners. And he goes, but I've been chasing you, Nick Slade. I've been chasing you, Trevor Reinhold. I've been chasing you, Michael Dane. I've been chasing, filling your name. And he goes, I want you to know that I care about that which is lost. But let me transfer into another passage, will you? Revelation chapter 3 is a very interesting passage as well. Because not only is heaven's heart for the lost, heaven's Heart is also for the church and those people that have become lukewarm. Now, Revelation chapter 3, read this with me. I know your deeds. He's writing to the church of Laodicea. And he goes, Laodicea, I know y'all's deeds over there. I, 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 I know what you're really up to. I know what your life is really about. I know how you've really been living. And he says, I know that you're neither cold nor hot. Now, I wish that you were either cold or hot, but because you're not either cold or hot, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. This passage was one of those troubling passages early on in my journey when I wasn't really surrendering to Jesus. Uh, I mean, we talked about this, Trevor. I mean, this is one of those passages that, that kind of mess with us a little bit. Listen to what he says. I know your deeds. I know how you're really living. You're not hot or cold. He says, because you say I'm rich and I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. You do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and you lack any spiritual substance. Verse 19, he says, those I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and have fellowship with him, and he can have fellowship with me. Who's he talking to? He's talking to those that claim to be Christ's followers, those who claim they've repented of their sin, those who claim that they have now started this walk with Jesus but have become stale and stagnant 
and lukewarm. Laodicea was a trippy city. Laodicea was a melting pot of a variety of nationalities, if you will. Kind of like Atlanta, Georgia. Much like Atlanta. It was a melting pot of various nationalities. It was a business capita. There was so much commerce and money being made in Laodicea. It was a medical mecca. They had some of the most sophisticated advances in medicine of their day. It was a very affluent culture, Laodicea. But the one thing that Laodicea had problems with, they tried to mask. Laodicea, they got their water, if you will, from two sources. From the Hierapolis, which were these hot springs up in the mountains. And people would go there for therapeutic use, if you will, to these hot springs. Well, that was one of their water supplies. And the other was a place called Colossae that had these cool, refreshing mountain streams. Now, 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 now listen to this. Listen to this. The basic necessity that we all need to survive day in and day out is water. So he writes to these people and says, here's what I've got against you. You're not cold or hot. You're lukewarm. Laodicea had one of the worst aqueduct systems known to man in that day. What, what that means is, from the source to the city, their aqueduct system was so bad that when the water actually reached the people, it was dirty, it was stale, and it was tepid. And so visitors coming into Laodicea, they would take water and drink it, and as soon as they did, they would spit it out of their mouth. And so what God is saying to the church at Laodicea, which could be the church here in Loganville, is y'all listen to me. Y'all listen. The source is not the problem. The source has never been the problem. Business, medical, all this affluence, that's not your basic necessity to live. I am. But what you've done is you've allowed your spiritual aqueduct system to become contaminated. You've allowed certain things to get in your life. And so you find yourself dirty, stale, and tepid, and, and nobody really wants to drink out of your well. You, you see, I've redeemed you and I've saved you, but the problem is not me. And so, so many people that come to church in the South, their spiritual aqueduct system is, is fried. And you can taste some people and just be around them spiritually speaking and go, man, there's nothing that really tastes like Jesus. My grandmother, Adams, she lived down outside of Noonan in the mill village of East Noonan. And there was a couple of old cotton mills down there. And it was just these little four-room shack mill village houses where all the people lived. And I'll never forget going down to my granny's house and turning on that spigot. And putting that cup under that spigot, and that water was just a cloudy, nasty, disgusting taste. And I remember drinking it going, man, this is what they drink every day. Thus, Laodicea. You see, God doesn't just have a heart for that which is lost. 
just for sheep, coins, and sons as he lays out the heart of heaven. He just doesn't have a heart for lost people who have never come to the Savior. He's got a a heart for saved people who have become lukewarm. And so you've got to evaluate your spiritual aqueduct system. What's your prayer time like? What's your word time like? How engaged in fellowship are you? Are you giving? Are you serving? Are you loving? Are you sharing? Listen, Revelation 3.20 is not a passage to be used for the lost person. He's writing to the church. Behold, listen, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I want fellowship with you. I desire to have fellowship and communion with you. But if any man will open the door, repent, clean up his spiritual aqueduct system, if any man will really respond and unplug from these sources that are not doing anything for you in return to me, then then I'll come and hang with you. Then me and you can sit down and dine and eat and chill and fellowship. But I'm standing at the door knocking. So somebody's knocking at the door and somebody's ringing the bell. Do yourself a favor and open the door and let him in because it is the greatest relationship that you'll ever have on this planet. It is the most essential and foundational relationship that you'll ever have on the planet. So as we celebrate Easter, the resurrection The resurrection screams, God cares about having a relationship with you. So let's pray.